personnel. Incoming podcast. This is MASH Matters. Greetings and salutations. Hello, how are you? My name is Ryan Patrick, and I am pleased to be joined once again by my partner, Mr. Jeff Maxwell. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Ryan Patrick, and it is indeed Jeff Maxwell. And Ryan, I know that we are both very excited about our guest today, and I know that everyone listening and everybody who listens to, well, basically any MASH-oriented program, uh, but especially MASH Matters, will be thrilled because we have someone who is a tremendous member of the MASH family, an incredibly talented writer, producer, all-around nice guy, and I'm talking about Mr. Dan Wilcox. The introduction scared me. I, th- I was waiting to hear someone else's name announced. <laughs> I'm, I'm honored that you've asked me to do this. Well, thank you. That, that's very nice. So, Dan, before we start kind of getting into MASH, I- I'd like our listeners to know a little bit about, about your history. And from what I understand, you began your writing career on a show, a children's show called Captain Kangaroo. I did, yes. And it's really where I, I learned the basics of writing. Wow. You had to deliver something once a week. Aha. Uh-huh. Some weeks, two scripts. Hmm. They, uh, the writer, I spoke to the Writers Guild about this after I was no longer on Captain Kangaroo, and they said, oh, no, that's completely improper. <laughs> they, they interpreted their deal with the Writers Guild that they could ask the writers to write one or two scripts a week at their discretion. Hmm. So you didn't usually have to do it every, other, every week, but like every other week, there'd be twice the assignment. For the exact same money. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> uh, you know, can you kind of describe that show for people who don't know what the heck Captain Kangaroo is? Because it's kind of a weird title. Well, he wore, a, I don't know where, where the captain came from. He wore a sort of a naval-looking uniform. It had a lot of pockets from which, in the early shows, he would produce toys and play with them on camera. So that was the kangaroo reference, that his, his pockets had stuff in. Oh, referring to the pouch, is that? Many, many pouches. Many, many pouches. He also, uh, he was bald and he wore a wig, and he was not as handsome as you think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I do remember him. I, I do. When I was a kid, I did see it. Were you in the audience when I was writing it? <laughs> 65, 66, 67. Uh, sure, why not? Absolutely. I <laughs> had a good time. The whole family and I watched it. It was embarrassing when I'd meet an attractive woman at a party, and it would turn out that she had been in the audience when I was writing Kangaroo. <laughs> yeah, that's not a hot title, is it, to say, hi, baby. I, <laughs> you know? I've been writing Captain Kangaroo for three years. What do you want to do here? You know, I don't know. When I saw him, I he he bothered me a little bit. I was never a fan because I just he just kind of you know he made me nervous. That guy in a thing named Captain Kangaroo. But I'm sure he was a very nice man. I know the show was on for a million years and he did a lot of fine stuff. But gosh, he was kind of strange to me. He was a difficult, a very demanding boss, and loudmouth and swore a lot. Re- oh my, this is big. <laughs> He also, he'd done something important. He had been, I don't know if you know this about him, uh, he was on the Howdy Doody show, and he played Clarabelle the Clown. Hmm. He was a mute clown who had a bulb horn like Harpo Marx's. Uh, that was how he'd communicate or get your attention with a bulb horn. And then he'd pantomime what he needed. And he would squirt people with seltzer, with a big seltzer bottle that he carried with. So when, when Keishan, Bob Keishan was the guy's name, he was Clarabelle and later became Captain Kangaroo. When he had his first child, he thought, I don't want my kid watching this short of show. And he created a show for children where the, the host was soft-spoken. 
polite and courteous. Hmm. Oh. And he did that beautifully. I mean, he carried that character off on camera beautifully. And he was about halfway to, he wasn't all the way to that. Fred Rogers went the rest of the way. Mm-hmm. Aha, uh-huh. yeah. But Keishan really did something important, I think, for, for children's television. I, I remember reading when I was there, they had a sheet of thou shalt nots that they sent to all the sponsors saying, we will not permit you to say this in a commercial on our show at Christmas time. Ask mommy and daddy to give you this for Christmas. That was that was not permitted. Oh. And I thought, I was proud to be on the show that took that sort of a stand. Mm-hmm. Well, he presented a very nice image that children and obviously adults resonated with because the adults were turning the TV on and off, so everybody sort of, it was okay well, with That's it. one of the secrets. The, the reason Sesame Street is as adult as it is, and it's pretty adult, given that it's for three to five-year-olds, is that they started on the premise that the adults control the, the television dog. Mm-hmm. So it had to be all right with them to have that show on. Mm-hmm. Going to turn it on for the kids and then have to watch that. You didn't see a lot of adults watching Teletubbies. <laughs> no. Well, not sober anyway, no. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Sesame Street, you worked on Sesame Street too, and Jim Henson is, has always been a hero of mine. How, how was it working with Jim Henson? We didn't often get to work directly with Jim. Uh, the Muppets were actually in the studio. I mean, the, the, the Muppets that were in the studio every day were uh, Oscar the Grouch, Big Bird, because the same puppeteer did both of them, Carol Spinney. Yeah. And uh, later, the Snuffleupagus was added to that. Back then, only Big Bird ever saw the Snuffleupagus. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Couldn't do a Snuffleupagus piece anywhere else but on the street. So it hung from the ceiling. <laughs> look up, and there was this huge creature over your head. Also, no one knew how big it was. Maybe you could tell how big it is now. Because everybody sees him and everybody can do a scene with him. But when I was there, since only Big Bird ever saw him, and the, and the end of the piece always was the Snuffleupagus would have to go home while Big Bird was getting his friend saying, here, come, come look, he's here now. I can prove he's real. And by the time everybody arrived, the Snuffleupagus would be gone. Mm-hmm. So you never got to see the Snuffleupagus alongside a person. Ah, aha. Uh-huh. So I'm alongside the puppet of a bird, which was about <laughs> seven feet tall. <laughs> So big. It's like, yeah, okay, that's 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 large. That's big, like maybe a little size of a collie. <laughs> but it was really huge. Is, is there a lot of pressure uh, on the writers to to make all this stuff work? Uh, like, you know, you're talking about a show compared to a network show like Mash or something that has all this uh, visibility to it. Was there that kind of pressure with those two shows? With Sesame Street and Kangaroo? Uh huh. Not the same sort of pressure. You know, anytime you go into a situation where you know what you're doing is good, and most of the people seem to know how to do it, there's pressure on you to keep up. Mm-hmm. But that's And that's what both of those shows felt like to me. I mean, with me on the, the Kangaroo staff was a guy named Clark Gessner, who wrote the uh, Charlie Brown musical. Hmm. Jeff Moss, he, he's credited with creating Cooking Monster. Hmm. I think a lot of people feel this, so I'll just say it out loud. I was always thinking... Maybe I'm a fraud and they haven't figured it out yet. (laughs) Imposter syndrome, yes. Imposter, yeah. So many people say, so many people in show business say, oh my gosh, as soon as they know I'm a fraud, I'm done. I had that feeling at Sesame Street. What we were doing was really, one of the two highlights for me. Sesame Street and MASH are the two top. So how did you get from Sesame Street to MASH? What what was that path like? You know, well, all right, let's see if I can track it out (laughs) quickly. (laughs) I, 
played out everything that I wanted to do or could do in New York, which is where Sesame Street and Captain Kangaroo shot. I knew I had to go to Los Angeles. Got a job on a children's TV show that shot in Austin, Texas. And I did that for a year and then moved on to L.A. When I hit L.A., I got in touch with people that I knew from either Sesame Street or The Electric Company, which is the other show that uh, Children's Television Workshop had on the air back then. Uh, and one of them was Thad Mumford. Thad was, uh, you know, it's appropriate to use the past tense on that now. You know, I was going to bring that up. I kind of wanted to say we certainly offer our condolences to you for losing a good friend, a writing partner, and, and most importantly, as I say, a good friend. He was certainly a friend to you and a, yeah. obviously a very important part of the MASH family. So it was a very... Sad thing. So, our condolences to you oh, for losing that. Thank you. you it's, it's, I don't know. It, it's, I'm still, every now and then I have a baseball question and I realize I can't call Thad and ask him. Yeah, very difficult. Uh, but anyway, I got in touch with Thad. We had written something together in my previous trip to LA, uh, an episode of That's My Ma. And I guess I, I was in touch with him, but I was doing other things. I was working on a show called uh, America Tonight which was the second year of Fernwood Tonight, which oh, was the summer yeah. for uh, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Martin Mull, right? And, uh, yes, Mull and uh, Fred, Fred Willard. Yes. Like Fred Willard, yeah. So I got a call in the middle of that from Fred. He was about to be offered, and he knew it. It was coming. An episode of the second round of Roots. Wow. So he had told them that he didn't want to write it alone. He wanted to write it with me. <laughs> I have no idea why me, except that we had written together before. But what we'd written together before was That's My Mama. <laughs> and hey, that Roots was a pretty funny show. So, gee, <laughs> makes sense. He had a way Thad did all his life of getting out of a difficult situation by lying. <laughs> <laughs> he often didn't realize he was doing it. So he said to them, I want to write this with my friend Dan Wilcox because he's had a lot of experience in long form. <laughs> you, I think the lie in that sentence. <laughs> uh, the longest thing I'd ever written was that that's my mama. <laughs> so we talked it over with our agent, and the agent said, oh, don't try to, to lie away out of it. Don't, don't try to write something over the weekend and <laughs> show it to them. <laughs> Dad, tell them Dan's not available, but you still want to do it by yourself. If they give you the assignment, write it with Dan, and you pay him under the table. Oh, boy. Okay. Wow. So he told them that I wasn't available. They said, okay, will you do it? And he said, yes. And then he and I wrote it, and he was gave, gave me the money, half the money. Wow. We went on living that line. It kept growing, of course, because they didn't know I was there. So, so the producers, nobody knew you were actually part of that script. That's right. Hmm. Wow. And Thad started saying, I got, I got to tell them. I'm going to tell them. When we handed in the, the first 20 pages or so, he said, I'm going to tell them. Then he walked confidently out the door, came back in. I uh, hadn't told him. He, he's thinking about it as he drove over. What if they didn't like these pages? Uh, he didn't want it to look like he was blaming me. So he'd wait. If they liked it, then he'd tell them. He had another excuse then, another excuse. And it went on for months. And I decided, okay, it's not going to happen. He's, he's never going to tell them. And I'll know that I did it. And that may have to be enough. <laughs> After At the end of that, Thad said, you want to be partners you know, on everything? And I said, sure. Okay, interesting. So that's how the partnership really got started. That's, that's well, really started with That's My Mama. But when we were on another show called The Waverly Wonders, Thad uh, decided that it was now clear that they liked what we had done. And he decided he had to tell them. And he went over to the Lorimar office and told them. They had already shot the titles. <laughs> 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 they had to go back and reshoot the card so it added my name. 
it's and I've said to people, it's the bravest thing I've ever seen a human being do. Certainly, it's the bravest thing I've ever seen a human being in show business. Do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, that's a great story. That is. That, that we're partners, and we we did the Wave, the Waverly Wonders together. We were on a series called Angie together, mm -hmm. and we got fired off of Angie, which was all right. We weren't happy there. It it never feels good to be fired. But the MASH offer came along. Possibility. We wrote a script, and on the strength of the script, we got the job. I, I'm surprised if you look at it. I moved to Los Angeles. In about a year and a half, I was writing an episode of the second round of Roots. And six months later, I was a writer on MASH. Wow. I didn't expect things to happen that fast. Was there a, uh, was there a certain level of, of, I mean, you certainly had done a lot of shows and series, but was there a, a certain level of intimidation to walk into a show like MASH? Oh, of course. Yeah? I, I've told people for years, I, I felt as if I'd been handed a Fabergé egg and told not to break it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you certainly didn't break it, buddy. <laughs> uh, were you aware of the show? Were you a fan of the show before you started writing on it? Yes, but not from the, the, the way you would expect. Uh, I was in Texas working on a children's show when MASH went on the air, and I didn't have a lot of time to watch a lot of TV then. But when I went to L.A., CBS, which didn't realize what it had, Fox didn't know what it had. They started showing repeats of MASH at 11.30 at night. Uh, they were, had an advantage. You could show more commercials in a half hour at that hour. Uh, so a lot of shows got cut down to the, the uh, instead of, I think we did 24 minutes of, 24 and a half minutes of entertainment in the half hour. A lot of shows would cut that down to 22 minutes so they could put the extra commercials in. But MASH didn't have to cut down because CBS didn't have anything else to go on after it. <laughs> so they would go for 35 minutes and show the extra commercials. And that's when I got to know how good the show was. Even then, my experience in writing the show was that I, I kind of learned it one character at a time. He started with Hawkeye, and then, and then what kind of jokes would he do, and what, what kind, how did BJ talk? And I went through them, focusing on them one at a time. The last one to fall into place for me was Charles Emerson Winchester, mm -hmm. when I realized I agreed with him. <laughs> So when you, uh, was there a, what kind of a process did you go through in, in terms of becoming part of MASH? Did you, you turned in a sample script or a spec script? No, it was the paid script. It was the one that eventually won the Writers Guild Award. Oh, wow. Uh, are you now Margaret? Oh, sure. Yes. I watched it last night. I, I, had, it, I had it recorded because it was on recently. Uh, and I hadn't seen it in probably 30 years. Huh. Uh, you had a funny line in it, Jeff. Thank you. It's not going to sound funny if I say it here. It was, you want fries with that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if I'm in a bar, uh, you know, alone and it's good, good night, I say that all the time. I say, hey, you want fries with that? We wrote the script on that premise. The story didn't quite work. When the show geared up, really going into action, Gene Reynolds showed up. I hadn't known how brilliant he was. Uh, he was astonishing. And he came up with the... the story turn that saved the script uh and we wrote it and we possibly could have had an emmy nomination for it 
We did get a writer's guild. Nom- oh, we nominated something else. That's why we didn't get an Emmy nomination for it. Well, when you say that you, it's been thirty years since you watched that episode, but that episode is the is the episode that that catapulted you into uh, the Mash family. What's it like thirty years later, sitting down and watching that show again, knowing that you created the words, you and Thad Mumford created the words that were coming out of, out of those actors' mouths? It's funny to me. I was. Saying, well, that's not as good as I thought it was. Well, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My wife had not seen it before and was sitting next to me, and it blew her away. I mean, it it is a very good episode. Yes. I don't necessarily take a lot of credit for that by myself. You guys know the process of writing a a sitcom. There's a a rewrite room. Now, we were in the rewrite room, so we were part of it. The the group sits around the table. Well, I didn't sit at the table. I was a smoker then. They didn't want me. <laughs> <laughs> I sat in the chair across the room. But the group sits around the table and changes every little thing that they find it necessary to change. Uh, now, we were part of that. If, if somebody said that if they wanted to change something, even if it was a line I liked, I would help try to think of what the new line ought to be. Hmm. So the, by the time it gets shot on this in that process... You don't have quite the same proprietary feeling you would have if you'd written every word of it yourself. And I don't mean that that's—I don't mean that is a bad thing. But I was watching it, thinking, "Oh, that was—that I remember John Rappaport pitched that line, or I remember when Thad came up with that joke. It was wonderful. He had a way of coming up with uh, fully formed jokes out of the blue. I quoted a couple of them at the memorial. Uh, what was the one that? Oh, it, it just popped out of his mouth once. But that the, the, the uh, somebody we were meeting with the uh, CBS brass, we had a luncheon. And at the end of it, somebody said something about something was going to happen in Rapid City, South Dakota. And that said, ah, yes, the uh, premature ejaculation capital of the world. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I, I find this fascinating in terms of the uh, comedy brain. I've always been interested in what that's all about. And you certainly have it. You talk about Thad Mumford and all of the other talented writers who are writing comedy. What do you think that gene is? I mean, people have said, gee, can you learn it? Can you figure it out? Do you have to be born with it? Um, is it environmental? Uh, is it structures of the brain? What, what do you think it is? There are people who have it and people who don't. Oh, okay. Uh, people who have it exercise it effortlessly. Yeah. Larry Gilbert. Oh well, I mean, he really had it. He was Thad's hero. Yeah, he he was amazing. What an amazing guy he was. Uh, were you a were you a funny kid? I mean, I know when I grew up. Well, let's talk about me now. Okay, when I was growing up, uh, I suddenly and I was kind of an overweight kid. Uh, I wasn't I wasn't good at sports. Um, some overweight kids are great at sports. I wasn't. I couldn't do much of anything. But I was overweight. You know, kids would, you know, make fun of me and beat me up and nobody would talk to me. And so you're, you're, you either become a, you know, a terrorist <laughs> or <laughs> you start finding ways to, to relate to the world. And, and usually, hopefully, it's a, it's a positive thing like being funny or, or thinking you are funny and making your friends laugh. And then when you make your friends laugh and you make your parents laugh and it goes on and on and on. But it came out of, you know, it came out of that difficult, painful process of being made fun of. And you hear so many comics talk about that. You're, you're not a comic. You didn't have that sense of, well, I want to stand up at stage and, and do jokes and stuff. But were you a funny kid? Did you have that, that gene in you or that need to kind of be silly and funny? Sometimes. 
wasn't the class clown. I came from a family that was kind of very showbiz. My mother, her brother, was a big deal producer-director on Broadway, Jed Harris. It, actually, Jed helped me get my first job on Kangaroo. Ah. I had audition material that I was going to carry in, up to their office and hand in, and I went to look at the show at my mother's house, and, and her brother Jed had, out of the blue, dropped in and stayed stayed with her, sleeping on the sofa. So he set up, watched an episode of Captain Kangaroo with me, and then looked at what I'd written, critiqued it, gave me a crash course in comedy writing. Hmm. Wow. Stuff that I still work from today. Wow. It was brilliant. He was, he was the only real genius I've ever met. And uh, I went, long story, I wasn't staying at my mother's house. My girlfriend had rented a place in New York for the summer, and she and I were living there together. It didn't have a TV, so I had to go to my mother's house to watch Captain Kangaroo. Seems appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> I went back to my typewriter in the, my girlfriend's apartment and uh, rewrote the scene according to what I just learned, and I got the job in a flash. Oh, wow. But but you didn't you never wanted to perform per se and get up and and you know tell through, through college I was an actor oh really okay One of the three best actors at Cornell when I was there wow all right so you did you had that, that you had that buzz in there but I left it I left it when I started writing I never looked back even though you're you, even though it's still in a comedic vein you felt much more comfortable in the writing process of comedy rather than performing it yes. So the process of writing, I, I'm, I'm curious, when you and Thad would work on a script, how would that work? Would you two sit together and write together, or would you come up with your own things and then come together and, and, and decide what to use? How, what, was, what was your process? Well, we, we did sit together and work. We even took turns and who typed, because the person at the typewriter has a certain amount of command over what's going to happen. <laughs> uh, so we took turns. But we would do it line by line, playing it out ourselves. I, there are teams that actually split up. And one team will do act one. The other team will do act two. The other act, the person in the team will do act two. I wouldn't have felt right doing that. It wouldn't have felt like it wouldn't have felt organic. It's funny because this, that's only the beginning of the process. The rest of the process is on, on MASH, we did three passes through a script in the rewrite room. And then we took it to a dinner at, at Bert Metcalf's house, I think it was on Wednesday nights, and Gene Reynolds would come, and we'd get his notes on this and changes on the same script. And then we'd set it up for the first read-through with the cast, and they would have notes. When we finished the script, we'd take a five, which always lasted 15, <laughs> uh, and, then, and then come back and uh, get notes from the cast. Anybody who had a note, any place, we would entertain it. Hmm. Uh, there was a lot of respect back and forth on that show. I remember getting a phone call on the stage. They wanted to change a line. They wanted to put in a, different, a new line. Would we please come take a look at it? I can tell you on most shows I've been on, they wouldn't have bothered to do that. Yeah, MASH was a special group of people. You mentioned Gene Reynolds coming over to dinner. Now, Gene was the producer of the show, executive producer for the, I think, the first four or five or maybe six years. He was no longer the executive producer, however, when you were on the show. Is that is that right? Am I remembering? He was a consultant. He left the show. We only saw him one day a week. Okay. So so his his role then as a consultant was to come over and, and give you his notes on, on the script. Right. Okay. Since you want to talk about Gene, I love I loved working with Gene. Yeah. We, we had a script. You may remember it. It was actually two half hours long. We didn't show them together. But when the USO troop came to visit. Yes. yes. 
Gwen Verdon was uh, one of the stars. Yeah. There was a woman who had been with the USO troop in uh, Vietnam who gave Bert the story. She had actually gotten, somehow broken her ankle, and they, they took her to a mash unit. She had an affair with a doctor. <laughs> and a bunch of stories came out of that, which were all, they were all partial. We knew, but we knew we had enough material to make a whole hour of television. But it was pieces of stories. There was a Gypsy Rose Lee story, which we, we said on Gwen Verdon, uh, where she, she went to a unit in, actually it was in Vietnam. She went to a unit in Vietnam and, and said, yes, yes, it's really me. You're not imagining things. And they had no idea who she was. <laughs> but we hadn't laid out the story. And Bert said, you know what? Tonight, this is on a Wednesday. Tonight, let's make Gene earn his money. <laughs> and, and when we were finished with the read through and getting notes, Bert said, okay, Gene, we have all these pieces of story. We don't have the, the full story, uh, the, the order in which they're going to happen and how they fit together. And Gene said, okay. So we told him all the pieces of the story, and he was making notes of all of them on a yellow pad. When it was all done, Bert leaned back in his chair, and Gene went into overdrive. He said, well, you want a, you want a good picture for your opening, so uh, here, you know, okay, he's getting dressed up to, to go out in the morning, but he's getting unusually dressy. Something's different. And then we, you want to go from that for contrast. Oh, well, you got this clinger story. And he went to the next item. Bert was making, writing all this down on a pad. In about 20 minutes, Gene had laid out an hour of television. Oh, gosh. Amazing. It was breathtaking. Yeah. And I realized what a, a benefit the show had gotten from having him attached to it. All this. I, I used to watch him. You know, I was sort of a, a, an observer of everything, and I used to watch him work with everybody. And I was uh, I was blown away at his elegance and the way he was able to maneuver a large group of people, pretty hot, you know, stars and and powerful people in a, in one sense, but maneuver them with a great deal of humanity, and still, uh, you know, everybody knew who the boss was. Yeah. And it was an amazing thing to watch. I, I told him that when, when I saw him at Bill Christopher's uh, memorial. I said, Gene, I was really amazed by you and how skilled you were at, at maneuvering this uh, incredible group of people and, and keeping everybody happy. And he said, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I left. But, you know, but I was. I, I, was, I mean, he, he was an incredibly skilled, talented man. He is. He still is. Certainly. Yeah. Great guy. And so you became an executive producer. Is that? Not on match. Not on match. Oh, I thought you were. I thought you were. That was Bert. Oh, that was Bert. Right, I, right, right. I became producers. You producers. Okay. Of the people who uh, got the title producer, Dennis Koenig also was elevated to producer. John was probably became supervising producer. But I was the only one who actually went to do a couple of producery things. Well, <laughs> speaking of that, uh, producery things, a lot of people ask me uh, about what various people do. You've got titles, uh, executive producer, producer, co-producer, supervising producer, created by, showrunner, all these things that sort of show up. And it's a little confusing if somebody wants to, is looking at that going, well, what what do those people do? What, why are all those people, you know, why are they eight producers and one executive producer and who's doing what? Well, the reason there are so many producers is the Producers Guild could not gain control over that title. The companies found discovered, and this is, was definitely true with Ed and me, that they could pay us with a title instead of money, and the agents would be happy. Mm -hmm. and, and there's another piece to that, which is you get 
a pension, you get contributions made to your pension based on your income from writing. This is the Writers Guild deal. If part of your work was producing, money received for producing does not count towards your Writers Guild pension. So they could save money on our pensions by paying us the exact same amount of money and calling us producers. Mm, okay. <laughs> uh, so anyway, a, a lot of that is also the uh, producer title got adulterated so much because people could just take it. Hmm. I mean, one, of the, one of the reasons the Writers Guild formed in the first place was that people were assigning themselves the written by credit when they had done nothing. It was a struggle for the writers to get control over who could get credit for having written something. And, the, and one of the big things the Writers Guild does now is it determines who gets the credit. Speaking of titles and, and, and written by credits, I'm looking at the the 17 episodes that you had a hand in creating for MASH, and most of them say written by uh, Dan Wilcox and Thad Mumford, but there's one that says story by, and there's one that says teleplay by. And I've seen that on other episodes too, crediting other writers. What's the difference between written by, story by, and teleplay by? Well, written by would mean you wrote everything, the story, the, the, the scripts. It's a, a, To some extent, it's a work of fiction when you think of how much of the work is done in the rewrite room, <laughs> but that's what that title means. Teleplay would mean you wrote the script, but not the, uh, the story. Story by means you did the story and someone else did the script. You may have contributed to the story. We laid out the story, no matter who did, wrote it. We laid it out in the rewrite room with the uh, index cards up on the bulletin board. What are the, what, what are the examples of story by in, in, in my case? Or do you have those? Was, on IMDB credited you story by for Death Takes a Holiday. Okay. Death Takes a Holiday was a Mike Farrell script. And he didn't realize, I think, how normal it was to have a, a large rewrite done. We did the large rewrite and he insisted on getting, having us take part in the credit. Okay. And I guess they had to find a way to divvy it up. I keep referring to the Writers Guild. I'm um, on a committee at the Writers Guild, the waiver committee, where people want exceptions to the, the rules of, for instance, if they want to be credited for something, the, the waiver committee has to approve it. Because there are rules, we, we won't normally give credit for a script to more than three people. Uh, and if it's a team of five or seven that all wrote, they all feel they wrote it together, they need our permission. So I think that for that one, Mike insisted that we come in, and I think the reason I'm credited for story is that was the piece that Thad and I wound up with. <laughs> that was the wedge of the pie that we got. <laughs> but I think the entire staff is credited on that one, and Mike. Well, and that also brings up the final episode, Goodbye, Farewell, Amen, which had a tremendous roster of writers. How, how did that work with that many writers being involved with the finale? How did you all work together to craft that? Well, I'll tell you, the, the, what was interesting was the, the first half of it, just getting the basic script written. We laid out a story with Alan Alda with us, the same procedure we would have done anyway, uh, and then divided that into, I forget how many writers there were separately, but my, my recollection is that it was seven people. That night, as a team, would be one, seven entities. And each of those entities worked with Alan Alda. Wow. Trying to, I don't remember which, I would recognize it if, if I watched the uh, last episode. But it was somewhere in the middle. There was a point where whoever had been going before stopped. And now it was our turn. And Thad and I went to Alan's dressing room and wrote that section, our section, with him. When we came to the end of what had been given to us, then the next, it was the next person's turn in the game, in the room. Uh, so that the first draft was written, every word of it, Alan Alda was in there for it. Wow. But we had all swapped in and out for different sections. Then the entire script was rewritten around the table. And the customary three times through that, the 
and then a time with Gene, and we, we did all of that stuff. You know, we all knew that we would have stories. We were, we were having trouble coming up, up, coming up with stories that the series hadn't done before. But we knew if we could get to the end of the war, there would be new things that hadn't been dealt with. I had talked to a, a Dr. Maurice Connolly. Oh, thank goodness I remembered his name when I needed to. <laughs> He's our guest next week, actually. It's going to be good. You can... Oh, he died years ago. Oh, Brian, did you know he's dead? For God's sakes, that's not right. Well, I guess he won't be our guest next week then. Okay. He had been in a mass unit in Korea, and and he was his mass unit was there, and he was serving when the war ended. So he remembered, for instance, that a uh, it's everyone was surrendering to his unit. North Koreans were coming out of the woods with their hands up, saying, "Feed me." I mean, there was food at the mass unit, and and they didn't have any. Huh. He remembered them getting a. Uh, North Korean dance band, the musicians. They were in uniform, but they were musicians for the North Korean army. Uh, and he said, we used them for entertainment. We had a couple of dances. You remember them playing I Dream of Genie with a light brown hair. <laughs> that became, for the final episode, the story about the, the Korean musicians that get befriended by Charles Winchester. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He tries to teach them the Mozart clarinet quintet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they get transferred away. And in the last triage that the unit does, because the fighting steps up, once peace was reached, the, the fighting stepped up because within the, the, I guess they, they reached the pact at the table, and 12 hours later it was to go into effect. And if you could move the uh, boundary lines in that 12 hours, that's what the final lines would be. So fighting stepped up, even though peace had been declared. Um, and for that last triage, we brought back in one of the musicians wounded. Oh, boy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Powerful moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What what was how was Mash different, uh, if it was for you, than some of the other shows that you've been involved with? Well, you, you, it's going to sound like I'm changing the subject, but I'm not. Uh, I was unhappy at one point about what I was with what I was being paid at Sesame Street, and I talked to a friend of mine who was a working comedy writer and said, "I'm thinking of quitting," and he said, "Don't quit." He had worked on Caesar's Hour, Sid Caesar. Said once in my life I was working on a show where all anybody wanted was for it to be good. You've got that now. Hang on to it. Mm. And the same was true of Mesh. I got it again. I didn't think I would, and I did. Mm. All anybody wanted was for it to be good is an oversimplification, but to be fair and honest, funny, uh, moving. It's the only comedy I've ever worked on that I cried while I was writing a script. Really? I think that. Certainly, that feeling is uh, obviously something that when I talk to Ryan and I talk to other people who are fans of MASH, um, they get that. And I think that's, you know, we talk about MASH matters. And I wonder I wonder why MASH matters. And we're, we're, part of the show is kind of examining that a little bit. Why does MASH matter? Um, does it? And, and what about it affects people? And does, it, does a show, can a television show... Um, really have an, an effect on us as a society or not? I don't know that. I don't know the answer to the question. But, you know, some people come home from work. They have had a hard day at work. They want to, you know, they slug down a, some libation and they want to turn on a TV and, and laugh for a few minutes and laugh for a half an hour. And if a show does that, they feel good. But after those laughs, I wonder if they really go away with some lesson learned or any, anything. I, I don't know. But MASH is, 
everywhere I go, and I have said I'm associated with the show, everybody really immediately goes, oh, my God, MASH. And it's a, it's a heart thing. They grab their heart. And so something was really going on there. I don't really know what it is. I just, there was certain ambiguity in the very premise that made it always interesting, people wrestling with themselves. If you think about it, all of our villains in the episodes when I was there were on our side in the war. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This show was against war. Mm -hmm. And I think we've all been stuck doing something one time or another where we didn't agree with what was being done or why it was being done, but we had to do the job. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think we got something out of that. It, it never put it into words. Mm -hmm. Ambivalence. Yeah. But it was part of what we were writing. They, they hated what they were doing, and that's why they made jokes all the time. The jokes worked. Worked for them and worked, worked for the audience. I'm not going to pretend that I know what the secret was. If I knew what the secret was, I would have sold it as a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> and we were talking about that show. <laughs> Well, it is. I mean, you know, I, I obviously you certainly had people say that to you and, you know, they get tears in their eyes and they talk about their family. Or I used to, you know, and uh, Ryan has told me he used to watch it with his mom. Yes. Yeah. My mom. Yeah. And a lot of people tell me that they grew up watching it with their parent. And I had one conversation with Alan Alder once about this. And he said, well, I think a lot of it is the fact that it may or may not be the actual show that's having the impact, but there is a, a bond um, between the parent and the child at that moment. So the, the feeling that they walk away with is really the bond and not necessarily about the show. Um, it might have been, you know, another show, but, and that bond would still have been there and they would have felt emotionally connected to that show as well. I don't know. You know, MASH was a very special, magical thing that, that happened. I, thought, I, I, I wouldn't negate that bond. I don't, think, I don't think that's wrong, but I don't think that's all there is to it. The, the show was intensely human. Mm. Yeah. I, I'll tell you what, I, watching the uh, Are You Now Margaret episode, I had forgotten how good Loretta was in it. Mm -hmm. I, I knew she was good at it. She won an Emmy for it. But I was impressed now in a way that I wasn't back then. Maybe because I know her, because I know what else she did on the show, what other kinds of things. Mm -hmm. This was virtuosic. Are there any any uh, any secrets you can tell us that we don't know about Mesh? Did you bury the time capsule? That <laughs> was, um, you know, certainly for me. I, I showed up at, on Mesh because I had spent a, a bunch of years in nightclubs as the wacky half of a comedy team, and when I showed up on Mesh, I. I thought, wow, a TV show. Everybody's going to, you know, get naked and have a lot of sex and there's going to be a lot of drugs and rock and roll. Wow, this is really be great. In reality, it turned out to be a bunch of adults. <laughs> and I was very disappointed. <laughs> I went, what are these people doing? Wait a minute. These are grown-ups. And I have to admit, as a, you know, as a young fellow, I grew up there. And, you know, I was connected with the show for nine years and I learned from, I was I'm very fortunate and, and I'm very grateful to have been around the caliber of talent that I was. It, it was kind of an accident that I was there, but boy, I loved it. And, and it gave me a, a great deal and I'm grateful for 
uh, for that experience as and I'm grateful for the experience you gave me and just being around you and the kind of people who were putting that show together was a very special moment for me as well as it is for everybody which I'm which I think is why we're also kind of connected on some DNA ish level I'm starting to tear up but uh, I'll be okay <laughs> Uh-oh, we're getting sentimental now. <laughs> I have a friend in England who's, who's a comedy writer, Peter Spence. He, uh, he created the show uh, To the Manor Born. And we met because he wanted, someone told him that I was in town in London. And uh, he wanted to meet anyone who had worked on MASH. And I went with him. We've become very good friends. I went with him on a trip. To, we dropped in on a couple of friends of his who were comedy writers. And... He hadn't briefed them. They said to one, then worked on MASH. And the guy said, MASH, I am not worthy. I am not worthy. Oh, my goodness. Oh. I'll tell you, one, one scary story for me is I went to a school to talk about uh, show business. They had a, a school, kids that were in drama classes and stuff. And there was a bunch of people from the music industry and dancers and people from TV and movies and stuff. So we were all there to kind of talk about our experiences to the kids, the high school kids. And... I came to me and I got up and I said something about, well, how many have you, how many of you have seen MASH? Not one hand went up. This was 60 kids in a high school. <laughs> and I thought, I kind of, really, I thought it was a joke. I thought somebody was playing a joke on me. I said, well, okay, how many, how many of you seen MASH? No, I don't know. I think maybe I saw it. <laughs> they had not seen the show. <laughs> and I said, well, what am I here for? What, <laughs> what, what, what are we doing here? And so I kind of talked, we chatted a bit, but wow, that was kind of a shock. I, I'd ne that had never hit me before. I'd never experienced that. Same experience uh, with a group of film school students. They, they had never seen MASH. Never seen MASH. I actually, then I asked them if they knew who Jerry Lewis was, and they did not. <laughs> so you were talking to a bunch of idiots then as well. <laughs> I think so, okay, yes. Yeah. Oh, maybe this was the idiot high school I went to. I don't know. I never went back, though. <laughs> They're still there. Um, they, they haven't graduated yet. No, they don't. <laughs> yeah, that was 30 years ago. They're still in high school. Hey, Dan Wilcox, I, I can't thank you enough. I, you know, I know I, I dogged you and said, oh, please, come on. Please, 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 please. And I hope I hope I wasn't too pushy about it. But I know, you know, Ryan and I were, were very excited about it. And we talked about you and we're, we're very uh not thrilled and, and appreciative of you spending some time with us. Um, Brian, do you have any more? Do you want to delve into uh, perhaps uh, his bank rooting number or anything? I, why we got him. <laughs> we'll, do that. we'll do that off the air. Oh. Um, I just want to say as a fan, Dan, that uh, your words have brought me and many others much joy throughout the years. Um, I want to tell you too, Dan, because it's, it's rare that I would get an opportunity to tell the writer of the show. One of my all-time favorite episodes is a show that you and uh, Thad wrote, which is A War for All Seasons. <gasps> and so I just want to thank you for writing that particular episode. I've watched that episode probably more than any other episode. Wow. And uh, it, it brings me a lot of joy. So thank you for that. Oh, well, thank you. I th that's one of my favorites also, and it was my idea to make a year go by in one episode. Oh, wow. And it, which let us do stories. We had wanted to do something about, again, Maurice Connolly's unit had improvised a uh, dialysis machine, they, and they got their parts by ordering from Sears Roebuck, <laughs> which could deliver all the way to the Korean War. Great. So we had stories like that where how, how could you, you, you send in a request to Sears Roebuck, and a month later the, the goods arrive, 
we, you couldn't tell that normally the, the understanding on a sitcom is that about two weeks at most will go by. Uh, so for this, with a whole year, let us tell stories. That was one that, that needed the time. We, Father Mulcahy, he planted a garden. He, he planted corn and it grew. And Jeff ruined it. I ruined that corn. <laughs> <laughs> and, and followed the story of the, uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers, which their fall from grace in the 1951. Uh, and he had to go the whole summer to follow that story, to tell that story. So it, it opened up stories that we couldn't do any other way. You know, some people like creamed corn. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Let it go, Jeff. Let it go. All right. Gee, well, well uh, hey, we could probably talk to you for another two hours, but um, you probably would get mad. So, <laughs> uh, again, we thank you. Uh, and appreciate this very, very much. And uh, don't be uh, don't be a stranger. If you ever want to come back and talk about anything, please do. Uh, uh, our mash matters is yours. Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much. You, as you can see, I can go on and on. But if you want to talk to some other people, I'm sure. But if you ever want me back, I'll be happy to. Yeah. Absolutely, positively, lutely. Thank you very, very much. We thank you for all your uh, pearls of wisdom and all the insights that you've shared with us about your life and, of course, the, uh, everybody's favorite show, Manage. So we thank you. And now you can go eat dinner. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, guys.